amen, amen. Well, you guys can take a seat. Good evening, City Light U. If you are new here, my name is Parker Anderson. I'm on staff here with City Light Church, and I just want to say welcome, and I'm glad that you are here. Now, May is upon us, despite what the weather might show sometimes. May is coming, and this means that graduation is coming. And I don't know how all the seniors in the room feel tonight when I say the word graduation or what you will be doing after college, uh, but I have just recently passed into this next phase of life by graduating from the Harvard of the, Mi Harvard of the Midwest Wayne State College. Can I get an amen back here? Thank you. <laughs> but I entered into what we call the real world where uh, bills are replaced with homework, or homework is replaced with bills, <laughs> And you no longer can take a five-hour nap whenever you want. But it's not as bad as you think, I promise. You actually make a lot more money out of college. But before I attended Wayne State, I was a sprinter at, the Mid at Midland University in Fremont. Hey, okay. Thank you. <laughs> so my freshman year, I was running sprints there. Um, and I was, as I was preparing this message tonight, um, I was having flashbacks of memories from when I was there. And one that I want to share with you is going to reflect uh, what Paul is going to call is us into in our text tonight. Now, I think all the student athletes in the room can attest that we all love the competition, but we don't necessarily love the preparation, right? So what that means is we love to put on the jersey, we love to go, travel for games, uh, play the games, maybe we take somebody down at their home turf, or we defend our own turf by beating them in our home towns. You see, when we go into these games and we play, but, and we shoot a three-pointer, not like me, but when we shoot a three-pointer and it actually goes in, uh, the score goes up by three, and those points actually go down in the stats book. Or if you are running your fastest race in finals and um, it's your personal best, that, that time actually goes down in the record books. And so my point here is that we love the competition, but we hate the preparation. And this was me. I was the epitome of this. You see, I was a runner, but I hated running. Can you see the irony in that? But I remember every Wednesday, the sprinters during the season, we would come together and we would work on our starts out of the blocks. And see, this was my favorite day. And let me explain why. On this kind of day, uh, we, would have a, we wouldn't have a full workout, but we would come in, we would work on our technique, and it was usually pretty short. So we were all happy that we didn't have to work as hard physically, but we would just hammer technique in order to run faster. So it was important, but we loved not having to work as hard. Now, I remember my first week at Midland, and I met a man, his name was Shaq. Now, you have to understand, this is Shaq's third year here, and it is my very first week. You see, he is one of the top dogs on this team. He has seen better competition than me. He has ran against, he has ran faster times than me, and he's had a lot more time to perfect his craft as a sprinter than me. And this is my first time that my cleats are hitting the practice field. And so he is one of the top dogs, and I'm nothing but a wee puppy. Thank you. So I feel like I have to make a name for myself and prove that I'm on the team, but as I'm struggling with this, I have a lot of fear and I have a lot of anxiety that they will think that I don't deserve to be on the team because I'm losing to all these older guys. Well, 
as I was watching Shaq one Wednesday, he was doing his warm-ups as he was preparing for his blocks. And you ever get the feeling that whenever you see somebody just perform and you're just like, there's no reason why I should even try. Like, I should just pack up and I should go home. Well, this was me. He was killing it. And after his warm-ups were all finished, our coach, he called all of us together because he would pit everyone against each other. You see, he thought it was a good idea that we would actually try to see who was the best. And because this is going to be happening, our meets, right? And so our coach would pit each one of us together, one by one, right next to each other in our lanes, and we'd see who was the fastest. Now I'm following the instructions of the sprinter. I'm getting into the blocks, and uh, when the shooter says on your mark, get set, I come up, and it seemed like an eternity as I was shaking my blocks, but the gun goes off, and we run down the track, and once we get to the end of the runway, I was actually quite surprised. I not only beat Shaq out of the blocks, but I was actually the first one down the runway. Now, the memory that I want to share with you is not that I am some physical marvel, because we can all attest that when we compare myself to the Richard Daniel, that I still look like the wee puppy. <laughs> but the memory that I want to share with you is Shaq's response for weeks to come after this day. Whenever we would line up in the blocks again, he would always false start to disqualify himself from facing me. Or he would make up excuses such as a bodily injury or, a, um, or, a, or being sick in order to justify himself being slower. And in my head, I didn't think this was my problem. I thought, well, track is an individual sport, so I will focus on my races, right? But you see, there's a bigger problem than just Shaq backing down from me. The problem didn't just affect Shaq, but it affected me. He was going to be on my team during meets. I was going to be re relying on him to score points during individual events. And more so, I was going to be relying on him when he was part of my relay teams to run his fastest time and to not back down from any challenge. So unfortunately, 19-year-old Parker didn't notice when this was happening. But what I should have done was I should have challenged him in order to help him work harder and not back down from competition in order to make him better, which in turn is going to benefit the team. And this is going to be only part of Paul's message to us tonight. While believers go through the battle of the flesh and the spirit, we as fellow believers have the responsibility to not stand idly by, but be a part of their fight. Paul's also going to show us to be faithful to our callings and to persevere through this fight. So, for all the type A people in the room who want to write all the points down, uh, I just want to congratulate you on all of your academic success because of your personality, and just know that I want to be you, and I am very jealous of you, but I just wanted to best serve you, so here they are. The first point is we bear one another's burdens, the second is we bear our own load, and the third is we do not give up. So let's get started tonight. I invite you to open your Bibles to Galatians 6, 1 through 10. That's where we'll be at tonight. But before we get into the nit and gritty of Galatians 6, I want to lay out the context of the book of Galatians first. You see that we are camping out in the very end of the book, but I think that in order for us to understand the end of the book, we need to understand the beginning of the book. At least that's what I learned in my three years at Wayne State College. You read from left to right, from top to bottom. Now... <laughs> You may laugh, but that's not the worst part. Unfortunately, when I learned this, it took me a little bit longer because they handed me a picture book. 
but that is the Wayne State education. All right, let's go back to the context of Galatians. So during the beginning of the Galatians, we see Paul, who's the author of the book, writing to the church of Galatia, and he is really upset. To be frank, he is pissed. The reason that he's upset is because the, the believers at the churches of Galatia were believing in false teachings from a group called the Judaizers. In Acts 13, we see Paul, he came through this area of Galatia preaching something like this. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man who is Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him who is Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. You see, Paul is preaching the gospel of salvation here. Now let me tell you what the gospel is by telling you what the gospel is not. The gospel is not based on religious performance or what you have to do to earn more love from God. But the gospel is having a right standing before God, which is only obtained through grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. And to the Gentiles in Galatia, they heard this and they actually responded in faith. If you continue to read in Acts 13, it says that as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So we see Paul, we see him come into this place, we see him preach the gospel, and then we see him leave. But when he left this area, the Judaizers began to try to sneak in to spy on the freedom that they have in Christ to only try to bring them back into slavery again by following the law again. So the Judaizers begin to spread false teachings that say you have to believe in the gospel absolutely. Is Jesus the Son of God? Yes. Is he the, a perfect sacrifice? Yes. However, when you pierce this uh, gospel skin on their message, you will see that you also need to do X, Y, Z in order to be saved. You need to follow the law in order to be saved. But more specifically, Paul wants to destroy this misconception that you need to be circumcised in order to be saved. And that is why Paul is so upset. He preached the gospel that says you can't earn your salvation, and then once he leaves, they start believing in the complete opposite thing that says you have to earn your salvation. Now, I can't fully relate to Paul and his feelings of frustration here, and let me explain why. See, during a sermon with Parker, unlike some of the other guys on staff, like John, Rich, or Clay, I don't have children. Well, not that I know of. But I can only imagine that Paul feels that he is talking to a child who has the attention span of a termite. And the child is doing the exact opposite of what he says. So usually during this part of the sermon, these men would talk about their beautiful children and how they would use them to illustrate a deep theological point or a gospel illustration. Now, they're not wrong in doing so, but I don't have that. So we'll have to make one up. So, I'm going to paint this picture for you. We're going to have a room with nothing but four electrical outlets and one metal fork. Now, in this room is my child, who is about five years old, and I'm with the child, and I say, Child, do not stick this metal fork in the electrical socket. You will get hurt. I don't want to see you hurt. I keep telling them this message over and over again, and they believe me, but then once I leave, they start to be enticed by the metal fork and electrical outlets. So when I return and my child is hurt, you can understand why I'm frustrated because they did the exact opposite of what I told them to do. So Paul, feeling this frustration, he writes this letter to the churches of Galatia 
to remind and defend the truth of the gospel that says uh, you cannot supplement or add anything of human effort in order to be justified or saved from your sin. Paul sees legalism taking place here, and he takes the responsibility of pointing them back to the truth of Acts 13. And I know what you may be thinking at this point, Paul or Parker, you now have the award for the worst parent ever award. But I actually can't claim that because I do not have children. So I found the loophole. So with all of this set up tonight, we will look and you will see how believers are impacted by the gospel of Jesus. With all of this said, I want, you, I want to ask you this question before we read the text tonight. Is the gospel evident in your community? Is the gospel evident in your huddles? Is the gospel evident in your city groups? Is the gospel evident in your interaction with non-believers? Is the gospel evident in your community? Now keep this question in mind as we read from our text tonight. I would invite you to turn to Galatians 6, 1 through 10, and I will read it, but could we please stand for the reading of God's word? Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor's. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has caught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who uh, sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have an opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is God's word. You may be seated. So this leads us to our first point tonight, which is bear one another's burdens. Now I want you to look, at, look with me at verses 1 through 2. Uh, we see Paul write to the Galatians, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now when we read verse 1, Paul is telling us that if we see anyone who is caught in any transgression or someone who is uh, intentionally seeking out sin and it's happening over and over again, anything that is out of step with the gospel or anything that is going to derail them, that we need to restore or point them back to the gospel in a spirit of gentleness. Now we need to understand what this means. Last week we heard a message from Skylar about the individual believer uh, battling the flesh and the spirit and reflecting on, is there a battle even happening? But right now, I'm not talking to the person who is sinning, who is intentionally seeking sin out. You are not off the hook. I will get back to you. But I do want to note that there are real temptations and there are real struggles that we face. I have my own. But believers, I want to call on your attention because Paul is writing this actually for you. When we are someone we know who claims Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that doesn't mean that we don't sin anymore. 
Sinning comes natural to all of us. But that, that does not mean that we can just let people do whatever they want and dive headlong into sin. On this side of eternity, Paul explains further about this fight between the flesh and the spirit in a book called Romans. But Paul is teaching us here specifically in Galatians how to lovingly encourage and not destroy one another in this process. So Paul is giving the people of Galatia a responsibility here. When you see someone who is struggling in sin, you need to restore them and bear their burdens. Now, I know a question that you might be asking yourself. Well, why do we do this in the first place? We address other sin because Jesus has addressed our sin forever. So, when we think about bearing one another's burdens of how, and how this affects us today, this does not mean that I'm going to sit with you and do things for you in order to comfort you as you continue to struggle. I am not going to give you some cheesy coffee cup verse from a tacky coffee shop named Hebrews and say, I hope that you stop struggling. And can I be honest tonight? That used to be me. I thought that was what I needed to do. I thought I needed to say, hey, Philippians 4.13, go read it. I heard it's really good, but I hope you don't struggle anymore. And Paul doesn't do that here either. He models making the Galatian sin of falling into a false gospel his problem. He writes this letter to show them their error, but also pointing them back to the gospel that saved them. So our responsibility today is to not shy away from those who are caught in sin either, or approve of their behavior to avoid confrontation, but to restore them and bear their burdens to make their sin your problem. Now, I want to look at the word restore here. Paul is using some descriptive language that's describing a dislocated bone that's going back into place. So let's paint the picture tonight. You can think about this scenario. Maybe you've seen it on TV, or maybe you've seen it on a movie, or maybe this has actually happened to you. But when your arm is dislocated, it doesn't feel good, right? Your arm is hurt. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. And when it moves, it is extremely uncomfortable, and it hurts. But you know that in the back of your mind, in order for the healing of your arm to start, it's going to have to feel worse before it gets better. You're going to have to pop that thing back into place, and you might even want to defend your current pain to protect from more but necessary pain. But if you have ever been on the other side of this conversation, it's not very fun, right? When you are the one who is in a reoccurring sin and somebody is coming to you to restore you, in a spirit of gentleness, it does not feel fun. I can, I can tell you that I've had Christian brothers come around me and say, hey, we need to talk about your drinking habits. Hey, I just want to bring light, like you are in a relationship. Are you protecting your girlfriend or your boyfriend's sexual purity? These are extremely hard things. Somebody is coming after you when you have the hurt arm and they're going to be yanking on it, and pushing on it. And that doesn't feel good. Now, I don't know about you, but one of my, when one of my brothers would ask me a question like this, I wouldn't just want to dislocate my arm, but I would much rather tear it off in order to get out of answering the question. Or when I wasn't a Christian, I would only feel attacked, and I would think that all Christians wanted to do was point out my faults and how much I sucked as a person. But why do we feel this way? It's because having somebody intentionally ask you about your sin is painful. And can I be honest tonight, I actually struggled putting this text together 
because I was afraid that you would hear this message and all of a sudden you would become the morality police. But that's not why I'm sharing this with you tonight. The reason that I share this with you tonight is not to give Christians a license to go out and point out sin in everyone. I share this with you tonight so that when you do see a fellow brother or sister, or if you are the one who is struggling in sin, the body of Christ can show each other how the gospel is evident in our lives. Because when we have derailed, we have the responsibility to help each other in pointing them back to the hero of the story. Now, believe it or not, Paul is actually not the hero of the story to the Galatians. Likewise, you and I are not the hero of the story with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But you can point them to Jesus Christ, who is the hero of the story. He saw our struggle of sin. He made our burdens his problem by living the perfect life and bearing our punishment of dying on the cross in our place and rising again on the third day, proving that he was God. This, City Light U, is our hero, and this is who we need to be pointed back to. Now, there is a danger of catching others in sin and trying to restore them. Paul explains that in the next few verses. So let's look at verses 3 through 5 together. For if anyone thinks that he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Now the danger Paul is warning us of in verse 3, saying if we are looking towards others in this comparison game, this can lead to very dangerous, very toxic things. When we see a brother or a sister who is caught in sin or struggling with sin, our response is not to look down on them, thinking, I am so much higher than you, I am so much holy than you, or you are so much less than me, you are so dirty. So with this warning, this leads me to my second point tonight, which is to bear your own load. With this warning that Paul is giving to us, he continues on in verse 4, saying, but let each one test his own work and bear your own load. Now, I know what you may be thinking, Parker, in this text, Paul just contradicted himself. He's saying to bear others' burdens, but we also have to bear our own load. Now, there is a big difference in these verses, and they don't go against each other. Paul is saying to the readers of Galatia that as you bear others' burdens, you need to take your own spiritual heartbeat and do the job that God has given to you specifically. Now, this is hard for us to grasp because I think all, every one of us through and through are competition machines, aren't we? I mean, I want you to reflect on the last time you lost a game of Settlers. When you have 10 points with your secret B point and the player in front of you scores 10 by getting longest road right in front of you. And Scott Hall, guys, I can think that we can all uh, fall under to competition machine because when I have missed the 31st layup or have turned the ball over for the 17th time, I can feel the frustration that you have with me because I'm the reason that your team is losing. <laughs> and I'm not innocent either. I remember when I was running track my freshman year, my specific races to run were the 100, 200, the 4x1, and the 4x4 relays. But during the prelim race of the 100 and 200, I didn't care how fast I ran, but all I did care about was running faster than the guy next to me. Because the goal of the race isn't run your best time, the goal of the race is to get first to move on to finals, and then run your fastest time. 
And we're all tempted to do this in life. We are tempted to look at our brothers and sisters next to us, but when we are called to just run the race. We want to look at the person next to us, and we want to beat them in this race of holiness, and that is not what Paul is telling us to do here. He's saying if we continue to beat them or to think that we are better than them, then we are going to deceive ourselves. We think that we are going to be something when really we're nothing at all. So as Christians, we are not to be experts in others' sin, but dwell on what God wants to do through us. And then when we do this, Paul explains that we have a pride in ourselves rather than his neighbor. Now, I feel like I have to push pause here because I want to explain what I just said. I don't want you to think that I'm saying that we can be prideful. We can walk around with a chip on our shoulder um, explaining to everyone how much holier we are than everybody else. But we can celebrate or we can rejoice in how the gospel is moving through us. And that is what Paul is communicating here. And that's what it means to bear your own load, to strive after what God has called us to do. The term load here is saying that God has given you, the believer, unique gifts, talents, and strengths. Now, sitting like you, I would ask the question tonight, what are those for you? Who has God given you a heart for? What is God calling you into? And are you allowing the gospel to work through your life? Now, this can be dangerous, and I want to warn us, this is not just another checkbox that you need to do in order to get more love from God or approval from Him, because that is exactly what the Galatians were doing. With, you, with your faith in Christ, Christian, you are fully known, fully loved, and fully accepted by the God of the universe. Now, why is that? Because you no longer have to try to work in order to please Him because you are already fully pleasing to Him in Christ. Now, to the non-believer in the room tonight, I don't know your story. I don't know what temptations or struggles that you may have on your burdened plate. But I do know that God is inviting you into something here. God is inviting you into a, a right relationship with Him, but He's also inviting you into a purpose. So with all the said, as we all endure the fight of bearing one another's burdens and bearing your own load, this does not sound like an easy job right? You might be looking at me saying, Parker, there is no way that I can keep these two points. And we're not even to the third one yet. But I would just ask, please hold on. And this leads me to the third point. Do not give up. Look with me in verses 6 through 9. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Or the NIV translation uses destruction here. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. See it? Yep. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have an opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household faith. Now, as we read these verses, we need to see the analogy that Paul is giving to us here. Paul is giving us the picture similar to what Skylar talked about last week, as he talked about the two trees. One tree being our flesh or sin that produces destructive fruit, and the other tree being the spirit or walking in obedience that yields good fruit and eternal life. So last week we saw these two trees, but now instead of just walking along some apple orchard, 
and picking the fruit, either good or bad, Paul is going to flip the script here for you and for me, and he's going to say, you are the gardener. You are the one who's going to plant, and you're going to be the one to harvest. Now, we need to understand something when we sow or plant our seeds in the ground. And Paul wants us to do two, wants us to see two things here. Whatever you sow, you will reap. Whatever you sow, you will reap. And let me put this in a simple example. For the first 18 years of my life, I lived on a farm, and growing up, when it was planting season, we would plant corn in the ground. Now, when the plant would come out of the ground, we weren't exactly shocked by what it produced. The corn seed actually made corn. And it didn't matter how much we wanted it to be any other fruit or vegetable, but we planted corn, so we yielded corn. And I think the reason that Paul is using this analogy of agriculture here is to show that the sanctification or looking more and more like Christ, it takes an extreme amount of time. I have never woken up one day and have somebody tell me early in the morning, wow, you have, you look so much more Christ-like than you did yesterday. You have become so much more patient, loving, kind, gentle, faithful, and you are showing so much self-control. That does not just happen overnight just because of some beauty sleep. Because when it comes to self-control, you know I'm in the back scarfing 16 donuts on a Sunday morning. And let's be real, I am not showing any fruits of the Spirit when it's 10 a.m. and I haven't had three cups of coffee yet. Now that we have seen the analogy of what Paul is trying to explain, we understand that if we keep sowing our seeds to the flesh, we are in real danger. This is a warning. Paul warns us to not be deceived. God is not mocked. And all of us need to understand that the God of the Bible is to not be treated lightly. He is an all-loving God, yes, but he is also an all-just God. Now, he is not a vengeful God for that will bring down wrath every time we take a Snickers bar from the local corner store or if when we tell a little white lie to make somebody else feel better. But Paul writes this warning to remind the Galatians of who they are dealing with. They are dealing with a God who is going to be just with sin. Now, we may be asking ourselves tonight, well, what sin did the Galatians commit? I don't see any evidence of them sowing to the flesh. Well, if you look back, the Galatians are guilty of becoming their own idol. By trying to share the throne of God, by trying to earn their salvation and become their own savior. Now, we have said this before, but this is the reason that Paul wrote his letter, to point them back to the truth. But what does that mean for us today? I think today we can fall into this lie that we are earning our, our salvation by attending the Sunday morning uh, meeting, by uh, coming to City Light U on Tuesday nights, by going to each and every huddle, by going to all the city group meetings, by uh, contributing to these conversations. And then all of a sudden we start to believe this lie that I'm killing the game, I'm really doing something in my own salvation. Now, because Paul is writing to the Christians of Galatia here, I want to explain something to the Christian in the room tonight. Now, there is a reason that I say Christian with quotes, and that is because you claim the gospel to be true in your life, but when no one is looking, you intentionally seek out sin because you want to have your cake and eat it too. I would submit to you that if you think you are getting away with sin, with any sin, it could be public as going out to the bars and getting wasted. Or it could be maybe less public and maybe you struggle with pride. 
But if you think you are getting away with any sin, you may think that you are fooling your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ with this gospel mask on, but you are not fooling the God of the universe. We cannot use the gospel to, for, as a j- get-out-of-jail-free card that we can use at our own convenience to escape the just punishment of God while trying to continue to satisfy the flesh. And to the non-believer in the room tonight, I want to submit to you that rejecting the free gift of grace that Christ offers means that you will suffer the same punishment as the Christian in the room tonight. And Paul explains what that punishment is. It is destruction or corruption or an eternity separated from a God that created you forever. But for both of you, I would submit tonight that there is still hope. Jesus still offers you both the free gift of salvation by believing in the gospel, from repenting of your sin and sowing to the Spirit. Now, the last segment may have been a hard pill to swallow. It wasn't exactly a fun pill to give either. But we cannot avoid this message of bad news because Paul puts it in here for a reason. But my hope and my prayer is that you would not hear the bad news and you will neglect to see the magnificent, fantastic good news of the gospel. That it brings. Now, for the Christian in the room tonight, who has been putting all, who's been putting off the flesh, maybe for hours, maybe for days, months, or even years, and you are growing tired of fighting, and you are starting to believe the lie that sin will satisfy you, and all you want to do is give in. You see people who are walking around living in sin, who are enjoying the immediate pleasures of sin, and think. It can't be that bad. Paul gives you a message in verse 9, and that is, don't give up. The fight is worth it. If you continue to sow to the Spirit or walk in obedience to God and what He commands, even though we will fail, but but Christ's mercies are new for us every morning, His grace is sufficient to save us, you you may not have the immediate pleasure of sin, but you will reap eternal life. But only by believing in Christ will you experience a perfect relationship with your Creator, free from temptation or strain of sin forever. Now, this is the most encouraging verse in our ten verses that we looked at tonight. Believer, look at me. There is a date marked on the calendar where God has it planned that He will be with you, and this relationship will be perfect. So, with all of this to say, What does it look like to see a community that has been impacted by the gospel? We see a group of people who are serious about walking in godliness, by bearing one another's burdens, in pursuit of wanting to run after what God has called us to do, and not giving up. These are the things that show that the gospel is evident in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we we thank you so much for this time. Um, We are free to enter into this room to explore what you want to communicate to us. Father, we thank you for the message of the gospel and that it frees us from all of our burdens, from everything that we have struggled with from the past, present, and future. God, we thank you that even though there is bad news, you did not hide the good news from us. You made made known the way to this perfect relationship with you, and that is only through your Son. So we thank you for this. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. We we thank you that it is true. We praise you. We love you. In your name we pray.